This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for August 18th, 2019. Conflict is intensifying between the West and Iran with oil tankers seized on both sides and threats of more serious action. Will there be a war and what's behind the tension? In this podcast, I talk to an award-winning journalist who specializes in writing about the region. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. And coming up for you in this podcast. They know they're going to lose a direct military confrontation with the United States. Iran can't sustain that. But they can, they think, um, uh, attack U.S. interests in the region uh, with relatively little consequences. Are they aware of the danger of giving ammunition, figuratively speaking, to somebody like John Bolton? They are, but they say uh, the only way to deal with a bully is to stand up to him. That's coming up in a couple of minutes. Uh, but first of all, I want to thank all of my donors on Patreon. I really appreciate you all. For the people who aren't donors yet, Patreon is a system that allows people to donate a couple of bucks per podcast or per month. And that helps me to devote more time to finding interesting guests and doing research about them. If you think that you could do the same as those donors, there's details on the website and at the end of the show. I mentioned the pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong a few weeks back, particularly the fact that a huge proportion of the city's population was taking part in them. Since I talked about them, the protests have been covered very widely in the Western media, and they haven't dissipated. They're continuing every weekend. It's notable that in the meantime, protests have started in Moscow on a similar theme. People, mostly young people, are taking to the streets complaining about the lack of democracy. There are notable similarities, but also some big differences. The main similarity is that they started in much the same way over a seemingly minor issue. In Hong Kong, that was an extradition bill that would have allowed authorities to forcibly take anyone they arrest to China, where the rule of law is much weaker, where the government can basically lock up anyone they want. In Moscow, it was about banning opposition candidates from standing in elections for the Moscow local government. This is a relatively minor issue. If Putin lost control of the local government there, it would, in theory, barely cause a blip on his total control of the country. And that was never going to happen anyway, because the chances of more than a few of those opposition candidates winning were remote. But in reality, Putin runs a regime where no uncontrolled opposition can be tolerated. If they can win a few seats in this election, they can maybe win a few more the next time, then maybe a majority of a local council, and then challenge Putin in more serious ways. The way Putin runs Russia, all opposition must be controlled. But it's important to note a big difference between the scale of the protests. In Hong Kong, up to 2 million people out of the 7 million citizens have taken part in the protests. 
the biggest demonstration in Moscow had maybe 50,000 people. That's a lot, but it's only about 2% of the size of the Hong Kong protests in a city with vastly more people. Moscow has an official population of about 12 million, but in reality, it's much bigger. The protests started when many opposition candidates were rejected for spurious reasons. This was mostly that, the authorities claim, more than 10% of the thousands of signatures required to get on the ballot were flawed in some way, usually unspecified. This, despite that the number of undisputed signatures far exceeded the number required, and that many candidates had documentary proof that many of the disputed signatures were valid, and even video testimony from the signatories. Other excuses to kick people off the ballot bordered on the ridiculous, such as because on the official form, candidates put a dash in a column to indicate that they don't own any foreign property, rather than writing out the words saying that they don't own any. The candidates excluded were exclusively associated with opposition figures, real opposition figures such as Alexei Navalny, although they have to run as independents because their parties are banned. The controlled opposition, mostly candidates associated with the Rump Communist Party, widely believed to be a puppet of the Kremlin, had no trouble getting their candidates on the ballot. The demonstrations started on July 20th. This one was permitted by the authorities, but they might have been startled by the fact that more than 20,000 people attended. At that rally, Navalny called for further demonstrations if the candidates were not permitted to run. Just for saying that, he was sentenced to a month in prison for calling for an unauthorised demonstration. The following Saturday, the 27th, that demonstration went ahead in the teeth of police harassment and violence. Hundreds of people were arrested just for attending. Most were later released, but about a dozen people face serious charges, which they could typically get eight years in prison for, for offences such as throwing a paper cup towards the police lines. Eight years in a Russian prison is no joke. Apart from the horrendous conditions, it's not uncommon for people to go into the prison system only to disappear and never be heard of again. The rallies have continued every Saturday up to this past weekend, with typically 50,000 or more people attending. On July 28th, Navalny was rushed from prison to hospital, apparently having been poisoned, and then sent back to prison against the objections of his doctor. But it's important to remember that, as well as being small, these protests in Moscow are supported by a particular slice of society. There is a group of well-educated Russians, mostly in Moscow and other large cities, who yearn for democracy and Western-style freedoms. You could call them a young middle class. They travel abroad on holidays, they speak English and other foreign languages, they get their news online from largely independent sources, and they pretty much all know each other. They're a small minority. There is an elite in Russia numerically tiny, who like the current system because, well, because they are the elite. And there is a broad mass of people who live outside the main cities, 
along with the working class majority in those big cities, who at best have no interest in these protests or the fixing of the elections that sparked them. Elections get fixed. That's what you do with elections. Friends of the strongman get rich. That's what the friends of the strongman get. They don't see a connection between democracy and the rule of law and their own prosperity because they have no basis for that comparison and they don't see democracy and the rule of law as the default method of government because they've never experienced them. As one member of the English-speaking, foreign-travelling, Moscow middle class told me, they want free elections, but even if they got them, Putin would be certain to win, maybe just not by quite so much. This is clearly not true in Hong Kong. The people there know democracy, they know the rule of law, and they know prosperity. They also know that the Chinese People's Army which massacred thousands of protesters in Tiananmen Square 30 years ago, is massing on the other side of the border, and that the Chinese might prefer not to do a repeat of that, but if it comes to it, they're willing to. That's a lot of brave people putting their lives on the line for democracy. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think. On the line, I have Reese Ehrlich. Reese has won numerous journalism awards, including a Peabody Award. He's also a freelance journalist who writes for CBS Radio, for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, for NPR and for Vice News. And his foreign correspondent column is distributed nationally in the U.S., Last year, he published his latest book with the title The Iran Agenda Today, The Real Story Inside Iran and What's Wrong with the U.S. Policy. Uh, I, Reese, I guess I should ask you, what's the real story inside Iran and what's wrong with U.S. policy? Well, the s dispute between the U.S. and Iran has been going on for many years, as your listeners know. Mm -hmm. uh, and the real story is that uh, Iran is not the evil empire that is portrayed in much of the U.S. media and certainly by the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a, a country, uh, a sovereign country that has its own interests, uh, is an aspiring regional power, but is certainly not a threat to the United States or the people of Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a boogeyman that's been created because we need boogeymen in order to make us feel insecure, in order to justify greater military spending and so on. Um, but uh, the real story is, while Iran certainly is a repressive government internally and engages in many reprehensible ap uh, activities in the Middle East, it's not the dire threat as portrayed uh, in Washington. Okay. I think you're probably correct on that. I don't think that Iran just doesn't have the reach to threaten Europe and certainly not the US. But you said it's an aspiring regional power. They'd certainly like to put the boot down on Saudi Arabia and possibly some other countries in the region, that would have a very serious economic impact both on Europe and on the US, wouldn't it? Well, I, I don't agree. Uh, I think there's certainly hostility between Saudi Arabia and Iran today. But uh, in the past, uh, as recently as a year or two ago, they had uh, high-level meetings between the two countries. They both have a common interest in keeping oil prices high. 
and if Saudi Arabia wasn't so closely aligned with the U.S. and Israel, I think the Iranians uh, could very well get along with them. I think they're willing to compete economically and politically and not necessarily militarily. So, for example, they s certainly support the um, uh, Houthis in Yemen. They support mm -hmm. Hezbollah in, in uh, uh, Lebanon, Lebanon and, and in Syria. He said they support Bashar al-Assad in Syria. But that doesn't mean that they would therefore invade Saudi Arabia or somehow take uh, military action against Saudi Arabia. Yeah, pause on that one, because the first in that list you gave was the Houthis in Yemen. That is the Yemeni civil war for the people who don't have a map in their mind. Yemen is essentially the southern slice of the Arabian peninsula, most of which is occupied by Saudi Arabia. That's certainly a war that could spill over and threaten Saudi Arabia if Saudi, I mean, however bad the human rights abuses that they're inflicting in Yemen are, and they're certainly terrible. It is a threatening war for Saudi Arabia, isn't it? Well, the Saudis um, started the war. <laughs> they, they're the ones who started the bombing and invasion of uh, uh, Yemen in alliance with the UAE, you know, the United Arab Emirates. And frankly, they've lost the war or they're in the process of losing it. The UAE just pulled out. Uh, Iran has put in very, relatively little. They've given political and economic support to the Houthis. They've probably supplied them with certain, a minimum amount of uh, weaponry. Uh, and it's caused human, humongous problems for Saudi Arabia internationally and domestically. It's a very unpopular war. So the question is, would Iran somehow have a beachhead against Saudi Arabia if uh, they weren't fighting? No. It's, uh, Saudi's actions have actually made the situation worse, have strengthened the Houthis and um, uh, tended to isolate uh, Saudi Arabia in the region. Okay. And one other thing about Iran, and there's an awful lot of people in the United States who are very hostile to Donald Trump, and that can lead them to perhaps emotionally think the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and to be in some way sympathetic towards Iran. Iran is a vile, repressive regime, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it is. So is Saudi Arabia. So is Bahrain. There's a whole bunch of evil dictatorships in the region that engage in horrific uh, human rights violations. But somehow the U.S. allies with some and vilifies others. Uh, I take a very consistent uh, position. I was in Iran in 2009 during the, the uh, protests against the election and the Green Movement mm -hmm. and reported. Uh, I wrote extensively on that. And there's a whole chapter in my book, or actually two chapters, on the popular resistance within Iran. The difference between what my analysis and that of the kind of the mainstream in Washington is, I think it's up to the Iranian people themselves to determine what kind of government they want. And if they want to get rid of their government and install a much more democratic one, that's their business. The United States view is they want the overthrow of the government in Iran and a U.S. pro-U.S. regime installed in Iran. Okay, that's but hold, hold on, hold with that, hold with that. Mm -hmm. Almost all Iranians agree with at least 50% of that, don't they? The Iranian government is spectacularly unpopular. As you said, there was the, the Green Movement, a failed uprising after fixed elections. Uh, there's also been a movement essentially in favor of women's rights, of, of women at enormous risk to themselves, taking off their hijab, their head covering in public. And, and they've been, in some cases, punished incredibly severely for that. It's really hard to have sympathy for this regime, 
in any case, isn't it? Well, do you have sympathy for Saudi Arabia, which beheads uh, people accused of murder and cuts off the hands of thieves? And, you know, uh, it's all we vilify Iran because that's Washington's uh, playbook for the moment. Uh, I you you listed. Yeah, uh, you're right. I, I agree with you. I agree with you on that. You know, and, 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 and I agree does, with you that, that Saudi excuse, is just as bad. But yeah, a, a stop clock one. is right once you know twice a day that that Iran is a terrible, terrible regime. Yeah, and the question is who who gets rid of that regime? Is it the mm-hmm. United States and installing the Mujahideen and the Hulk, this reactionary uh, cult that the U.S. is cultivating now to take over in Iran? At least. Bolton and, and some of his uh, friends are uh, have that in mind. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Iranians, I would say, uh, agree with more than 50% of what I said. They agree with most of it because they have the experience of what is a pro-U.S. regime look like in Iran. That's what happened in 1953 when the U.S. overthrew the democratic government of uh, Mohammad Mossadegh and installed the Shah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Iranians have no desire to see that repeated. Uh, and the uh, whatever new government that arises in Iran, if the people do rise up, it's not going to be a, a U.S. client state. And that's that's the real issue. Who is not is the question is not is Iran a bad regime? The question is who would run the country if the U.S. has its way? Mm-hmm. What's the alternative? And you mentioned John Bolton, this guy with the walrus moustache, who looks like chocolate wouldn't melt in his mouth, but he is a hawk, and that's really putting it at its mildest. He has a great enthusiasm for going to war with Iran. He's been installed in a powerful position by Donald Trump. But does Donald Trump agree with him? Donald Trump seems to have wanted not to get involved in any wars at all. That was kind of a badge of pride of his at one point, wasn't it? Well, well, Trump is a, a peculiar character. He's a narcissist who has his own views that continually sh- shift. I certainly wouldn't want to work in his cabinet or be an advisor to him, uh, even if I agreed with him, which I don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Bolton is an uh, unrepentant uh, neoconservative, uh, has for years called for the overthrow of the government in Iran, not to mention in Venezuela and pretty much everywhere else in the world that he doesn't, where he doesn't like the governments. Mm-hmm. Um, and he uh, is carrying this policy of maximum pressure on Iran is basically aimed at overthrowing the government and installing a pro-U.S. regime. But it is not working. That's the key thing. And Trump is re- realizes that. And I think we saw it when um, the Pentagon and Bolton prevailed on him to uh, start a, some, a missile attack on an Iranian uh, facility after the one of the incidents uh, of what was it, a month ago now two months ago mm-hmm. and, drone was uh, Trump, and yeah and and uh, Trump called back the attack and I think that was a, a decisive moment which is that apparently Trump is willing to carry a very big st- stick and um, I'm sorry speak very loudly and carry a very small stick to paraphrase uh, Theodore Roosevelt yes. he's not he's not and that the basically now the Iranians are calling his bluff when they took the uh, British tanker recently and brought it into Iranian waters and are holding it. Um, that was a sign that uh, the, they don't think that Trump is serious about with all his military rhetoric and threats of bombing, that when push comes to shove, he's backing down. Uh, and that is, that is so far turned out to be the case. And there was a various disputes about the U.S., 
producing uh, video images that appeared to show Iranian Revolutionary Guards, which is uh, essentially a military force of the government of Iran, although it sounds like a terrorist organization, the name, them interfering with shipping and perhaps attaching and removing mines from ships. What level of credibility would you give that? Well, I think there, there there's no question that Iran is involved in retaliating against the U.S. But keep in mind, this took place in the context of the U.S. pulling out of an internationally recognized nuclear accord that was passed unanimously by the Security Council. And the U.S. is in violation of a Security Council resolution. How come when other people are in violations of Security Council resolutions, we use that to justify military action. But if somebody does it against the United States, oh, my God, they're terrorists. Uh, the British seized a tanker illegally that was carrying oil through the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. I think there's no question, and we can get into the details if you want, but basically they violated the law by seizing a Iranian tanker claiming the oil was going to Syria when it wasn't. Uh, so the, the British, sorry, the Iranians retaliated by seizing a British tanker. Uh, and there's a tit-for-tat um, escalation going on. Um, is Iran involved in attacks on some shipping in the, in the um, Straits of Hormuz and in the Persian mm -hmm. Gulf? Yeah, probably. Um, is the U.S. and Britain doing it as well? Yes, they are. And it's, it's, frankly, it's very dangerous. We've talked there about potential splits between different interests within the U.S., for example, Donald Trump and John Bolton. Is it possible that there are multiple actors in Iran who also have different motives that, uh, and, and some of them are more gung-ho and more willing to confront uh, the U.S. than others? Yes, certainly. Uh, I was in Iran uh, in the period when the Iranian people in the Iranian parliament were debating whether to go along with the nuclear accord. And there was a strong sentiment from the what are called the hardliners, or in Iran they're referred to as the principalists because they support the principles of the Iranian revolution. Mm -hmm. uh, they opposed signing the accord. They said, and I remember getting into an argument with some of them, they said, well, what if Obama is out of power and the next president decides to renege on the deal? I said, oh, ho, ho, that's not likely to happen. Uh, the United States, you know, if they sign an agreement, they're going to stick to it. Ha, ha, ha. Actually, I, I said, and if the U.S. did pull out, that Iran is still in a position to, to take action. Um, so, yes, there were people then and today who uh, never saw, thought the nuclear accord was a good idea. Uh, they're not necessarily they don't necessarily want to build a, a nuclear weapon. That's not on the agenda as far as all the factions are concerned. But they wanted to have take a harder line, a more confrontational line with the United States. And that mainly meant in places like Syria, Iraq, Yemen, uh, on the periphery, shall we say. Mm -hmm. They wanted to step up their efforts there because they know they're going to lose a direct military confrontation with the United States. Iran can't sustain that. But they can, they think, um, uh, attack U.S. interests in the region uh, with relatively little consequences. Are they aware of the danger of giving ammunition, figuratively speaking, to somebody like John Bolton? They are, but they say uh, the only way to deal with a bully is to stand up to him. One thing that I find very striking is the almost love-in between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. Are Iranians perhaps looking at that and saying, if we got the bomb, we'd have an awful lot more respect? 
Well, there is that argument, but um, I, I actually I've interviewed very high government officials all the way down to ordinary Iranians. They really don't want to build a nuclear bomb. Um, setting aside all the technical issues that it would take a lot longer than the U.S. claims. It would take them years. Mm -hmm. But um, they, remember, went through a war with Iraq from 1981 to uh, 1988. I should just give the background for that for listeners. The Iranian revolution was in 1979, I think, and within yes. a year or so of that revolution, Iran was invaded by Iraq, if not with the on the instruction, then certainly on the egging on of uh, the United States at the yeah, time. Iran was the United States was extremely antagonistic towards Iran. The United States supplied Saddam Hussein with a large amount of weaponry, with which Iran was attacked. And including that's really, chemical weapons. Yes, and that, that, that has really set the scene for the Iranian regime's attitude towards the U.S. They're just incredibly distrusting. Yes. Yeah. So in the con in the context, they they supplied the Saddam Hussein with chemical weapons, who and he used them against Iran to horrific effect. And even under those circumstances, Iran did not develop a nuclear weapon. Uh, they could have. Uh, they didn't. Uh, they made a decision. They claim it's on religious moral grounds. I would argue it's on practical grounds. You know, what good is a half dozen nuclear weapons? You can't really use them. The, you, the best argument you could make is that they would for, be for defensive purposes. Mm -hmm. But in, in any case, neither back then when they could have justified, in their own view, justifiably used it, uh, um, atomic weapons, they didn't. And to use it to, to develop them today is counterproductive. They're much more um, able to make use of um, counterinsurgent or insurgency wars in various places is a much more effective tactic than uh, trying to secretly develop a nuclear bomb and, and have it discovered and justify an attack on them by Israel and the United States. So, so that essentially means insurgency wars, essentially means supporting the Houthis in Yemen, supporting Iranian Shiite for factions in Iraq and harassing America and its allies by that means rather than a full frontal attack. Yes, I think that's exactly right. The one other thing I want to move on to then, Reese, is the forces within Iran. And one of the things that I think any uh, civilization is prone to do is seeing its adversaries as a monolithic block. And that's certainly something that happens in the United States towards Iran, that they're seen as a monolithic block. And I haven't been to Iran, but I've spoken to some people from there. And that seems to be, it couldn't be further from the truth. In particular, the resistance to religious rule, and we should just note for listeners who aren't familiar with it, that Islamic law is enforced on everybody who is a Muslim, with some very small exceptions for religious minorities and not very nice exceptions, but it's enforced on everybody. Women, by law, must wear the hijab whenever they are outdoors. They can be prosecuted if they don't do that, and that has happened. If you simply stating that you're an atheist publicly is something that will certainly get you locked up and would make you in danger of being executed in Iran. I'm wondering what's your sense of the degree of opposition to that enforced religiosity. Is it very widespread or is it a liberal clique? 
Well, it's a, a question of your politics and your economic class. Mm-hmm. The upper class, uh, and there are wealthy Iranians uh, and upper middle class folks who uh, very much resent all the religious laws. Um, and you mentioned some of them, but there's also inheritance laws where women are uh, not fully uh, entitled to inheritance as they would, might be in a Western judicial systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a you know ban on alcohol, but everybody drinks. Um, and so in that sector, there's a great deal of res- resentment. Among the poorer folks in uh, cities and in rural areas, there is a strong belief in Islam. And they believe that not just that it's a personal decision to carry out your religion, but that it, the religion has a legitimate role in the state uh, in guiding the uh, you know the laws and uh, and guiding people's personal in, in civil society. Yeah, yeah. Think of it um, in Britain or in the United States or in, in the EU. You have religious. Christians who believe the te- the country should be governed by the Ten Commandments. Certainly in the United States, there's a sector of evangelical Christians who believe that. Mm-hmm. Well, imagine if those evangelical Christians came to power and had the military and the police and the CIA and the FBI behind them. Imagine what kind of society you would have. Well, that's what it is in Iran. Uh, but there are in 2009, it was very interesting. There were kind of two trends that emerged in the mass movement, which was involved millions and millions of people. Uh, one trend was for the complete overthrow of the Constitution, rewriting and having a civil secular constitution, not unlike what they had in, under Mossadegh in 1953. Mm-hmm. But a sizable other section of people wanted to keep the current Constitution, which places Islam at the heart of the politics of the country. Mm-hmm. And uh, they wanted to see significant changes. So, for example, you wouldn't have mandatory hijab. If women wanted to wear it, that's fine. If they didn't, that's fine. Uh, change in the inheritance laws and so on. Lots of reforms, but to keep Islam as the central um, tenet of their society. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, the, you know, there is among ordinary Iranians a split opinion on that. And I would like to see a situation where they get to vote on it and actually make a decision and, it, and agree to adhere by the results. Uh, but the current regime, of course, is not interested in that because they might lose. And do you think that the caricature of liberalism in the United States, that it's sort of a coastal elite, is perhaps reflected a little bit in Iran, that you have these kind of upper middle class people, well-educated people who get to travel internationally, they don't want to have the strictures of Islam enforced on them, but actually people who, regardless of whether they support the government, they do support the religiosity of the society, would they be in a large majority? Well, I don't know. I, frankly, I don't know. And mm-hmm. and um, there are various opinion polls taken and so on. But bottom line, uh, when you're living, especially under the threat of a violent overthrow of your government by an outside power, um, you tend to rally around your government and, and you uh, rally around your religion as a, a source of inspiration to fight that external power. So, um, but I, I will tell you frankly, I don't know how much I can describe the two trends and many trends within that, but who would win in a popular election? I think it depends on what was going on in society as a whole at the time. Right now, Iran is at war with the United States, not militarily, but um, 
certainly in terms of it's an economic war, the U.S. is trying to crush the economy. Inflation is horrible um, and people are suffering from it. And they would tend to side with their government in that situation. Okay, because the the question that I, I want to ask there then in, is the follow up to that is that it's observable that when a nation goes to war, it tends to unite around its leaders. My final question for you then is, do you think that's a calculation that's in the mind of the Iranian government that if they are under pressure on the home front, it might be advantageous or it might be seen by them to be advantageous to get into, if not a hot war, then a hotter war with the United States and its allies in the region? Uh, no, I think uh, they, the government in Iran, whether it be the hardliners or the reformers or the, the centrists, mm -hmm. uh, do not want the sanctions that are imposed on them. There's something like 300% inflation. Uh, the economy is uh, in tanking. The oil exports are uh, in serious decline. Mm -hmm. The country is suffering. And I, they don't, it's not like, oh gosh, if we get the United States matter, then they'll do things that will unite people around the government. The people were united around the government when they implemented a healthcare system that is known as Rouhani care. Um, you know, they, the people want all the things that people all over the world want. Um, I think what the Iranians are doing now is they're saying, uh, look, the U.S. pulled out of the nuclear accord unilaterally in violation of international law. And um, what if we're going to live up to that agreement, so do the other countries, and we'll take whatever steps are necessary to make that happen. If this shoe was on the other foot, and imagine if Iran had pulled out of the agreement, what mm -hmm. would the U.S. be doing now? Would the U.S. be sitting back and say, oh, okay, we'll just let the Iranians go ahead and do whatever they want in violation of the agreement because uh, they chose to do so? No, the U.S. would... What would it, it would be exerting maximum pressure on Iran. So the Iranians feel like, well, wait a minute. If we agree to the, uh, the accord we get sanctions. And if we disagree with the accord, we get sanctions. What kind of what kind of world is that? Reese Ehrlich, award-winning journalist, author of The Iran Agenda Today, The Real Story Inside Iran and What's Wrong with US Policy. Thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. Make your view heard. Email podcast at challengingopinions.com to set out your ideas and defend them on the next podcast. Go to the website for sources and links to what we were talking about. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at Challenging O on Twitter, and follow Reese Ehrlich at Reese Ehrlich. And get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or a topic for a future show. And thanks to everyone who signed up as a patron on Patreon so far. I really appreciate you all. It means I can devote more time to finding interesting guests and doing research on their background. And if you could do the same and donate a buck or two per podcast or per month, you'll find a link on the website. Also, you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone or by email. It's all at www.changingopinions.com. The Changing Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening.